Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Just 24 hours before Detroiters and others in Southeast Michigan go to the polls for this year's local elections. We're going to talk about Prop R in the city, which would create a commission to study the idea of reparations for African Americans here in Detroit. And we'll be joined by Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan, who is seeking a third term in office. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. So tomorrow is, of course, Election Day in lots of communities across southeast Michigan. Here in Detroit, we're going to cast ballots for mayor, for city council, and for city clerk, and we have a number of proposals to decide on as well. A little later in the program, we're going to talk with Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan, who's going to talk about his bid for Re-election. He is seeking to become just the second mayor ever here in the city of Detroit to be elected to a third term in that office. We are also going to talk a little about some of the suburban races later in the program. We're going to talk about what's going on in Dearborn, where there's a pretty hot mayor's race going on, and also in, in Pontiac, where uh, Mayor Deidre Waterman is not on the ballot, and there will be a new mayor there as well. We're going to talk with two reporters who are covering those races pretty closely. But first, we want to talk about another key question on the ballot here in Detroit. Proposal R is going to create a new city task force to study the idea of reparations. This task force would, quote, make recommendations for housing and economic development programs that addressed historical discrimination against the black community here in Detroit, according to the ballot language, at least. The proposal is a vestige of the failed Detroit City Charter revision, which voters rejected pretty soundly back in August. But there's a sense that this specific proposal, all on its own, would have widespread appeal here in Detroit. We will see tomorrow, of course, what happens with that. But here to talk about what the idea is behind this proposal is someone who served on the Charter Revision Commission, which included this idea in its proposal. Carissa Wallace is an attorney and someone who served as a member on this Detroit Charter Revision Commission, uh, which called for a reparations task force uh, in its charter proposal. Carissa Wallace, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. So let's start with this. When you talk about reparations in the context of what you proposed as part of the Charter Revision Commission and what's in this ballot proposal, uh, what does that word mean or, I guess, what could it mean? I, I get the sense that this is about mm -hmm. starting a really important conversation here in Detroit. Yes, yes. And I think for me, I also I always like to level set with just the textbook definition of what reparations means. It means to make amends for a wrong that one has done by paying money or otherwise helping those who have been wronged. That is the Oxford textbook definition. Mm -hmm. So when we're thinking about reparations, I think a lot of times we get focused on money and paying out money to individual persons. But I like to think of it, and I think the best way for us to think about it is making amends for these structural and policy errors that were made in the past by instituting policies and legislation that is intended to correct these lingering effects of the institution of slavery. So let's talk specifically about mm -hmm. the commission that would be created. What what would it do? What powers would it have? And yeah. how would it how would it come together? Well, I think those are some questions that are left open by the current proposal. And those were questions that the Charter Commission sought to really um, button up and have pretty tight. So, um, you know, the current proposal that is on the table, it calls for the creation of a commission 
to look into issues related to water sanitation, environmental health, um, rights to safety, recreation, housing, et cetera. And it uh, puts broad powers in city councils in the task force that they create to do that work. Um, so some of the things that I do hope would come out of this, if this proposal does move forward, is a clear delineation of some of those structural questions, like who will sit on this task force? The Charter Commission was very prescriptive um, in the proposal that we put forth and that we wanted to ensure there were persons on this commission by virtue of their education, training, or experience that would uh, bring skills to the table um, to ensure that this was a robust process. Um, we also have questions, uh, the proposal leaves questions about what will the duties be? What type of information will they be gathering? Will it be just information that is accessible from city records or will they be have powers to um, subpoena private organizations who may have also played a role in some of these um, structural and policies that we know um, have were intended to hinder black communities. The other piece that I think is really important um, that should be clearly delineated mm -hmm. if this proposal passes is the timing. You know, how much time will it take for city council to put this task force together? How much time will this task force have to put together their initial recommendations? And what are the requirements for city council to hold public hearings to hear the recommendations that come forth from this commission? All of those things were very clearly delineated in the um, proposal that the Charter Commission had um, proposed. And those are some um, areas where we hope city council could be a little bit more um, explicit if this proposal passes. Yeah. So uh, when you say the word reparations, I think mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people get scared. A lot of white people yes. get scared <laughs> yes. because I think that there is a, there's an a, a implication, I think in their minds that this is an effort to affix blame and maybe assess some penalties uh, yes. I want to give you just a little uh, bit of time to talk about whether whether they should be afraid, whether that is that is something that is maybe at the core of this inquiry. Is it about affixing responsibility? Um, I think that when we approach it from a perspective of trying to blame a specific person or a group of persons, yes, people are going to be hesitant to get involved here. From my perspective, this is not about ascribing blame, but this is about taking responsibility. You know, none of us were here when um, slavery was an institution. None of us were on this earth when, uh, well, sorry, few of us were on this earth when these Jim Crow and segregation and other, you know, blatantly anti-Black policies were um, existing. But we all have a responsibility now to improve the systems that we have to live in. And if we continue to turn a blind eye or throw up our hands and say that it's too complicated, then we are all responsible for um, allowing these policies to continue moving forward. And we know that it's not just at a city level where these actions had taken place. Mm -hmm. So we're not expecting the city of Detroit to be able to um, solve all of the issues that being said, the city, we know from historical documents, did play a role in the institution of slavery and the um, and, and anti-Black policies. And it is incumbent upon us to take responsibility for that which is in our control. Mm, yeah. I'm talking with uh, Carissa Wallace. She's an attorney who served as a member of the Detroit Charter Revision Commission, which called for a reparations task force in its charter proposal. That uh, charter proposal was rejected in the August primaries, but now we have uh, Prop R on the ballot, which would uh, create a commission to study the idea of reparations for African-Americans. Uh, we're talking about how that would all work and sort of how it fits in the broader narrative of the conversation we've been having as a nation uh, about historic inequality uh, and the ways that it casts forward into our lives today and how we uh, mitigate uh, all of that. As always, uh, we want to hear from you as well. What do you think about uh, Prop R? Do you I, like the idea of studying reparations for African-Americans? 
if you're a Detroiter, do you plan to vote for Prop R tomorrow? Uh, and give us an idea, if you do, what kinds of forms of reparations do you think a task force like this should be considering? What should this inquiry uh, look like? As always, uh, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook play page, put comments there, uh, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Let's start today with Tim in Detroit. Tim, what's on your mind? Yeah, uh, Steve, I'm interested. Uh, what, what, what does blame have to do with anything as far as reparation? Well, I mean, I think uh, it's a question that I think you, it's probably best put to, to some of the people who oppose the idea of even an inquiry into reparations. But but I'll try to, as best as I can at least, uh, voice that. I, I, I think that there is in America – uh, a, a real sensitivity on the part of many white Americans. Let's make that clear. It's not all white Americans, but many white Americans that that all of this is about trying to affix some blame uh, to them or to their ancestors for the inequality that exists today. And it makes people uncomfortable, I think, uh, b- because, I mean, there's a natural human, I think, resistance to the idea of being blamed for something, especially something that uh, you don't think you had a personal hand in. But the other dimension that I think makes people uncomfortable is the idea of uh, reparations in a monetary sense uh, that, that uh, who, who will be responsible for paying, right? I mean, whenever you talk about uh, making somebody whole or making good on uh, something that you did bad to someone, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of angst about what that means and whether that means uh, not just a shift in cultural power but a monetary shift, uh, an economic shift, and those things make they make people nervous. Um, you know, again, I don't share that point of view, and so I feel a little uncomfortable. Uh, speaking on behalf of of those folks, but I think I'm doing a pretty good job of uh, of, of explaining where I think they're coming from. Uh, Tim, does that does that make sense to you? I, I think the word you're looking for is guilt. Yeah, right. I think that's right. There, there, there is. But, yeah, go ahead. Okay, but but listen, it has to be money because we uh, white people have benefited from our labor in building this country for centuries. And Detroit, people forget Detroit is a is a majority black population. We we don't have to ask white people, is it okay that we get paid for what they did to us? Yeah. Well, I I mean, I think that's a point of view that uh, that I certainly share, Tim, but but again, I think there's I don't know, this is a it's an issue that I know whenever it comes up, uh, it makes people makes people nervous, makes people uh, un- uncomfortable. Carissa, I wonder if you have uh, any reaction to, to what Tim's talking about here. Yeah, I mean, I, I share your sentiments, and I, I definitely am frustrated um, by the, I guess, the use of this guilt or this um, idea of blame as a barrier to even move forward with the inquiry. And so that's why when I try to uh, talk and educate other people, um, people, I tried to broaden the idea of what reparations can look like so that we can kind of see beyond these stereotypical barriers. But I agree. Like, if we can agree that slavery and that racist policies were wrong, then we can agree that amends are due. And amends, reparations is just another word for amends. Yeah. Yeah. Again, Tim, really appreciate your call and your comments. Let's go to Todd in Detroit. Todd, welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, how are you? I'm all right. Um, yeah, so, you know, I'm listening to, and I, I, I was sitting at my desk, and I was listening to um, uh, the show, and uh, you guys started talking about reparations and Proposal S, Proposal R, and our organization is the People's Voice, which is the founder or the author of Proposal R. Mm-hmm. I mean, Proposal S. S, right. And, um, you know, but I, the history should, you know, to the extent I have a, a, a couple minutes to explain, the history of it was 
um, we envisioned a proposal R that was actually going to create a reparations commission and a reparations fund. Um, that side and that faction that branched off and sought signatures, because it's an effort in getting signatures, because these are vo- voter-driven initiatives, right. not necessarily through council and making a resolution and pursuing it that way. When it's voter-initiated res- um, in- initiatives, it is, uh, I, we think it's a more powerful statement. So when we have signatures, you know, you had to collect 3,608 signatures. Mm-hmm. We had to break up in, in, into factions and, and, and groups. And our group sought to get signatures for Proposal S. The other group was unsuccessful in getting uh, signatures for Proposal R. So they have essentially joined uh, City Council's measure. And are, are, we're supportive of City Council's measure because it continues the dialogue. I mean, because otherwise we wouldn't be talking about any mm-hmm. of this. Right. Um, yes. So, you know, to a certain extent, some people say that it's low-hanging fruit by opportunistic uh, um, politicians who want to go higher. I, you know, I, I prefer to – I don't like to look at it with that kind of jaundice. Mm-hmm. I, I look at it as, you know, we're still continuing to dialogue, a much-needed dialogue, and, and, and a framework. And at least, if nothing else, they'll study what kind of framework this should have because yeah. I believe it'll pass. Um, I believe Proposal S will pass, even though, you know, it makes – when you see it in the framework of how I just described it, Proposal S makes more sense as to why, you know, why are citizens looking to remove certain restrictions from the charter that allows them to appropriate money. Hmm. And that's the reason why, because we envision a voter-initiated uh, voter initiative as it relates to reparations and the creation of it and compelling our elected officials in how that construct should look like. Yeah. Todd, I'm, I'm glad you called and added that that context to this entire discussion, R and S and, and the relationship uh, between them. Uh, the, thanks very much for, for adding that. Um, I should also note that this is, uh, it's Todd Perkins, uh, a pretty prominent lawyer in Detroit, I believe, who is on the line. And I should also note that uh, he is an old high school classmate of mine. So I'm really glad to hear from him here on, <laughs> on Detroit today. Uh, Carissa Wallace, I wonder if you have a reaction to what Todd's talking about, though. Yeah, I mean, I definitely understand um, the, and I appreciate the additional context um, in the history of Proposal R and S. I do think they do have two different um, perspectives here, and it'll be interesting to see um, how the voters uh, feel about these uh, diverging issues. Yeah, again, Todd, thanks very much for the call and uh, the really great uh, background and context. Let's go to Keisha in Detroit. Keisha, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me, Steve. Uh-huh. Um, I just wanted to provide a comment because, you know, I'm, I'm out here in the community a lot, and I hear folks say when we're talking about, you know, both Proposal S and R, uh, but particularly R, you know, we have, you know, how are we going to do reparations with our own money? We hear that argument constantly, right? And I think that it's important to note that we have to start somewhere in this city because I think we can all agree that the city of Detroit owes residents something. Like, mm. we look at history, right? We know that this city has participated in restrictive covenants that lock folks out of homeownership, the mm-hmm. urban renewal policies, and the resulting decimation of black neighborhoods in areas like Black Bottom that ultimately extracted tons of black wealth. And even today, when we look at the tax foreclosures of the early 2000s, and even the $600 million overtaxation that robbed um, homeowners and continues to extract wealth out of our communities, I just think that it's important that we talk about the importance of starting somewhere, because these are issues that are very clearly systemic and keep repeating themselves, you know, throughout history, and ultimately keep black people in Detroit from securing and maintaining wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, if we have commissions um, like this one that will, you know, seek to address these issues, it means that we start somewhere. I don't think that it means that, you know, we're going to have reparations next year, right, or that the city of Detroit is going to have to be solely responsible for that. But it's a start versus continuing to go down the same, you know, history repeating path that we've been on. So that's the comment I wanted to provide. Yeah, I I really appreciate Mm -hmm. that call and and the information that that you're sharing with our listeners. Uh, Carissa, I want to go back to something that she started with, though, Mm -hmm. this, this criticism that Essentially, this is a black city. It's 80, 85, 86 percent African-American. If yes. you if you set up a program for reparations to black Detroiters, it would be coming from black 
Detroiters in some way, uh, which which kind of contravenes, I guess, the 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 idea of reparations. I thought Keisha did a good job of of explaining why that's probably a, a, a too too narrow way of of thinking about it. But I want to give you a chance to address that as well. No, I I agree. I think the way in which we uh, spend our money is a reflection of our values. And if we say that we value reparations, then we should be willing to devote our monetary resources towards it. And again, like this is not an issue that started with the city of Detroit and it's broader than the city of Detroit, but we have to be responsible for what is in our control. And so I I absolutely think that there is a... um, there's so many examples um, of where the city has participated or created policies that were blatantly anti-black or um, had that had that known impact. And we, we do need to start somewhere. OK, Carissa Wallace, uh, it was really great to have you here Thank you. with us for this conversation. Thanks for joining. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan is going to join the program to talk about his bid for a third term as the city's chief executive. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan is running for a third term in office. If he is successful, he would be just the second mayor in the city's history to be elected three times. He's going to face off tomorrow against former Deputy Mayor Anthony Adams. Here to talk about why he thinks voters should give him another four years in office is the mayor of the city of Detroit, Mike Duggan. Mr. Mayor, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me on, Stephen. So with just under 24 hours left before voters begin making their decisions about who's going to be the chief executive here in Detroit for the next four years. I wonder if you can tell me what you think you want voters to keep in mind as they're preparing to cast those ballots. Uh, Well, the biggest thing is get out and vote. Uh, And right now that's the the focus of our campaign. We've been out hitting doors and phone calls and texts because you get into these kinds of elections, the, the people who are the angriest and want change, they're motivated. They go out and vote. Uh, but but people who are feeling good about things, we need to make sure uh, that those voters get out, too. And so really, it's been a get out the vote push for us. Hmm. So if you had to choose a signature achievement of the first eight years that uh, you have been mayor, I, I wonder what what you would uh, say that was. Um, I think I've had a big role in changing the tone of politics in the city. If I could transport you back in time to eight years ago, uh, the mayor was fighting with the council constantly. The mayor was fighting with the unions. The city was fighting with the suburbs. The city was fighting with Lansing. And we spun down into bankruptcy. And instead of uh, reaching out a hand in partnership to anybody, uh, everybody kept fighting with each other. And so if you look at what's happened uh, in the last eight years, City Council and I have a lot of disagreements, but there haven't been any of these personal attacks. There have been policy issues that we've worked out. I've gone eight years without vetoing anything uh, by City Council, which is something that I don't think we've ever seen. Uh, it's certainly not as far back as we have records on, on vetoes, but we've also had good support from Lansing. We, of course, have great support now from Washington. But if you look at the tone of this election, a lot less us versus them. I look at these city council races that are going on in District 6, District 4, ML Elric and Letitia Johnson and, and Gabriela Santiago Romero and Hector Santiago. They're talking about positive things they want to do for their district. They're not attacking each other. Mm. Uh, and I think that's been a very healthy thing for the city. Mm. So uh, the last time we spoke, uh, of course, we were up on Mackinac Island and uh, you had recently announced that you'd didn't want to participate in a debate with your opponent, uh, Anthony Adams. And we had a conversation about that. And, and in it, you talked about the, the effort by his campaign to kind of frame this as an us versus them uh, election. And that was 
one of the things that that bothered you about that campaign. I, I want to talk in a little bit more um, and a little bit later about that decision. But one of the things that he said in response to that when he was on the program, I thought was pretty interesting. He said, we, we live in a city where there are profound differences and profound gaps between uh, Detroiters who live in some neighborhoods and Detroiters who live in others, uh, between people who are trying to bring development to the city downtown and people who are doing it in the neighborhoods, and that by pointing out those gaps and inequalities, that's not exploiting them. That's not uh, that's not acting inappropriately uh, about those issues. It's trying to draw attention to them. I wonder. I wonder how you would answer uh, that criticism. Well, I, you know, I, I try to take it seriously from a corporate attorney who lives behind two gates in his community. Uh, that 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 is what he's now uh, concerned about. But when we started this campaign, we had a national pollster, Al Quinlan, and he said, "You can't believe the numbers in Detroit." By a 65 to 30 margin, Detroiters think the city is going in the right direction. He says, we don't see that anywhere in America. People in the country think the country's going the wrong direction. People in states think the states are going the wrong direction. You talk to people in Baltimore and Chicago and Seattle and Minneapolis. He says, as long as you keep doing your job, Detroit is the national outlier in people feeling good. He said, you're one candidate who could give you a serious run is if somebody who came in and said, uh, yes, we made progress, but let me show you what I would do better. Uh, and I kept waiting for that to happen. It never did. So, uh, I, you know, I'm not getting engaged with somebody who doesn't have any of their own ideas. and The voters can decide whether that was the right decision or not. But in, in past elections, uh, you've faced uh other candidates who I think were saying many of the same things that Anthony Adams is saying. And in fact, those candidates didn't have the qualifications that Anthony Adams has. I mean, he was the deputy mayor here in in the city uh, and, and ran the water department and lots of other things. What, what's the distinction in your mind between him and the other people you faced? Well, of course, I had enormous respect for Benny Napoleon, who was a great public servant. He had a really good agenda with an idea to, to focus on the city a mile at a time, and I adopted a number of his ideas. Coleman Young had a transportation idea to deal with mass transit on an elevated rail car that he brought up repeatedly. We actually did a great deal of research on it uh, internationally. Uh, these were people who were bringing forward good ideas for the city. They weren't just spewing negative stuff. Uh, and so I felt like they were uh, strong candidates who had ideas. But uh, in this campaign, of course, you have never had uh, a candidate come through a primary with less than 10 percent of the vote before. So it, it suggests to me that the public responded the, the same way. And you've been around long enough. I, I was supported Coleman Young in 81, 85 and 89. Uh, he didn't debate his opponent in any one of those three years. He did so, not. That's true. <laughs> uh, uh, so. Uh, you know, I made a decision, and I got to tell you, uh, Stephen, when I go into the neighborhoods every week, nobody says to me, oh, my God, I need a debate to make up my mind. Nobody said that to me. Hmm. Uh, I, I want to move on just a little bit and get to some of the questions that our listeners have for you, Mr. Mayor. Uh, Anthony on Twitter uh, wants to know about DDOT services and whether you think they are sufficient for riders in the city. Uh, Jimmy on Twitter also wants to know uh, why he says you're not doing anything to solve the bus driver shortage issue. He said nobody wants to hear a rehash of what you did in 2014. Uh, he says bring some of that same energy you had for lowering auto insurance uh, costs to to this issue. Uh, talk about transport transportation in the city and where we are with the bus driver shortage and with the the route issue that has come up uh, in the last couple yeah, the, of weeks. The, there's no doubt about it. The 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 um, DDOT service is not where it should be, and I'm not happy about it uh, at all. Uh, we are only pulling out two-thirds of the service that we did pre-pandemic. Uh, and uh, we just gave the drivers the largest pay raise in history. They ratified a contract six months ago with more than a 20% uh, pay increase. Uh, but uh, what you are seeing, and you're seeing it in school districts that can't get school bus drivers and the like, uh, is that bus drivers in this country 
see the the health risks uh, and see the pay and uh, are not uh, flocking to the jobs as they were a few years ago. Uh, we build, anybody who's been on the DDOT buses know this, we, we built the protective doors that shield uh, the drivers from the passengers. So we have done a good job of keeping them uh, healthy. And we're talking to the unions now uh, about uh, recruitment enhancements. We've got a class uh, going right now, but I'm not happy with the DDOT service. I'm focused on it every day. Uh, and it's going to be a matter of uh, uh, of filling these driver positions, and we're, we're going to solve it. But it's bad right now. So, so I wonder if the federal money that is headed to Detroit, some eight hundred million dollars, which I, I can't I can't remember the last time a Detroit mayor was maybe about to start a term with that kind of boost, uh, financial boost uh, from from anywhere. But I, I wonder if that is money that could be helpful in this in this effort to, to shore up transportation in the city. Is that the kind of thing that we should expect out of the ARPA funds? I think we are going to do it in one-time capital things. You're going to see um, upgraded software systems. You're going to see um, upgraded uh, uh, terminal systems. are going to get the buses fixed quicker and get them on the road. But, Stephen, I'm going to lost sight of the fact I'm the mayor that came in during a bankruptcy. This federal money is gone in 2024. Mm-hmm. So the easiest thing in the world as a politician to do is spend it all the next three years in ways that, you know, go hire 400 more police officers, go, go raise the pay of bus drivers, go do these things. And then in three years when the money's gone, and by the way, extra pensions kick in from the plan of adjustment, uh, and now uh, a mayor in 2025 is right back uh, in, in financial crisis and threatening our, our retirees' pensions. So uh, everything that we do with the American Rescue Plan money, and city council, to their credit, has backed this, is going to be for things that have long-term benefit for the city, but they don't have recurring expenses that extend beyond uh, when the money's received. Hmm. Uh, I also want to have you talk just a little about it's been eight years that you've been mayor. I asked about what signature achievement you would point to over that time. I wonder if you can identify the thing that you think was your biggest failure over the first two terms. Uh, right now, there's probably nothing uh, I'm, I'm more unhappy about than the bus service. I mean, I ran the smart bus system. I take a lot of pride, mm-hmm. and, and we had dramatically built up data with the new buses, the articulated buses, the Connect 10 routes. I was really proud of the direction uh, DDOT was going. And probably uh, the thing that I'm most aggravated about is the step back we've taken in bus service. Mm. Uh, I I also wonder, and I know we only have a couple minutes left here, but as I said in the open, you'll be the second mayor in the city's history to be elected to a third term if you're successful Tomorrow, let's take a second and talk about the the legacy that that represents and and the historic, I guess, marker. Did, did did you ever imagine that we would be at this point when you first decided to to run for mayor? You know, I, I look at the historic aspect, and we've been electing mayors in the city since 1824, uh, and the notion. Uh, that on, on January 1, I will be the second longest-serving mayor in Detroit's history. Uh, it does uh, it does hit me hard, and it makes me feel like uh, I have an enormous uh, responsibility. And, and the people of the city, Stephen, if you're with me, people are great to me. The grocery store, the gas station on the street, for eight years, the people of this city uh, have just been enormously supportive of me, and uh, it... Uh, uh, it just means, you know, that I have that much more pressure on me in the next four years to, to continue uh, to improve the quality of life for, for the people who stayed. Because the people who stayed were the ones who elected me, and, and they're the ones who have been so far reelected. Okay. Mike Duggan, mayor of the city of Detroit, uh, good luck in the last day here of the campaign and tomorrow uh, on Election Day. But thanks for joining us here on Detroit Today. Good to talk to you, Stephen. We're going to take another break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about some of the big local elections in the suburbs with two reporters who are covering them. There's a pretty hot mayor's race in Dearborn and one going on in Pontiac 
as well. We'll hear from those reporters about uh, what's going on in those subdivisions. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. Talking about tomorrow's local elections here in southeast Michigan. We've been talking about a couple of races here in Detroit. But there are also a lot of significant elections taking place in the suburbs. We want to talk now with two reporters who have been covering some of those races. Uh, Nargis Rahman is a civic reporter for WDET. She's been covering the Dearborn mayor's race. Nargis, welcome to Detroit Today. Me. Also with us is Nick Mordawanek. He is a multimedia journalist for the Oakland Press, and he has been covering the mayor's race in Pontiac and other local races. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, Nargis, I want to start with you. I have seen a lot about this mayor's race in Dearborn. Uh, that's a community that uh, I know is experiencing a lot of change and it seems like that change is playing out in the narrative around this uh, this contest for mayor. Tell us what is going on there. So there's a couple of things at play. Um, first of all, you know, we haven't had a new mayor in Dearborn since 2007 um, when Jack O'Reilly was sworn in after the passing of uh, Michael uh, Ghetto. Guido, sorry. Um, but now we're looking at issues of flooding and policing, which have been hot topics for several years, but are coming to the forefront, especially since last year's Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and we've seen that the death of George Floyd has caused a ripple effect across the country in terms of accountability in Dearborn um, and other cities across the nation. And in terms of flooding, we're looking at the south end and the east side of Dearborn have um, seen a significant amount of flooding, especially since 2014, when a similar flood happened across Metro Detroit. But when it happened again this past summer, over and over again, people um, have become very frustrated with the, the response by the, um, the by the city. And so, you know, this time around during the mayor elections, it became a hot topic in terms of how the candidates were talking about flooding and what that looked like up to this campaign. Um, and people are listening and watching to see um, what happens in that. And the third thing I would say is it's a historic moment because we, um, Dearborn might be electing the first Arab American or Muslim mayor. Um, mm -hmm. The last time someone ran for this in such a large capacity for mayor, it was 20 years ago. Um, and it actually all fell down because of 9-11 and people decided not to vote for Abid Hamoud. And now uh, we're looking at a possibility of that happening if uh, Dearborn elect residents uh, wish to vote for um, Abdullah Hamoud, who is Arab American, he's also Muslim, and he's Lebanese. Um, if if Abdullah Hamoud wins this race, it'd be the first time Dearborn would have an Arab, an Arab American mayor. Talk about the significance of that. Uh, and this is to me, I think, again, the the signal of the kind of change that we've seen in Dearborn over a really long period of time. So um, as we know, his contender, Gary Warnchuk, is also someone that people have seen um, in Dearborn for a long time. He, you know, Gary Warnchuk has been around um, as a former Wayne County commissioner. He's also um, the, the, was the editor of the Daily Tribune and Dearborn Press and Guide. Um, and he also spent time in the state as a state representative. So um, Abdullah Hamoud right now is serving as the 15th district state representative already representing Dearborn in a different capacity. But the significance is that Dearborn has about 40% of an Arab American population. It's the largest population in the United States of Arab Americans and of Muslim Americans. 
um, and they're not synonymous, right? So there's a diversity in both of those communities, but you know, Dearborn is home to that. And we've seen that, um, unfortunately, like on the census, people cannot check off that they're Arab American. It's not its own category. So it's hard to trace those numbers sometimes due to the lack of that kind of transparency. However, we know that across um, Dearborn, there are you know several businesses, there is lots of city representatives that are solely kind of ref reflecting that change. And um, right now, you know, something Abdullah Hamoud talks about is bringing like language access to the table, working with people that represent the city and how the city is right now. And that's something that people are looking for. Um, whether he wins or not, people are saying that it's a time for more representation and people reaching across the aisle to work together to represent the people that actually live there. Hmm. So uh, Nick Mordawanek, let's talk about Pontiac. Who's running for mayor there and what issues are they running on? Also talk about what happened to Mayor Deidre Waterman, uh, who's been uh, in charge there for several years. Well, uh, the incumbent mayor, um, Deidre Waterman, ran as a write-in candidate in the August primary uh, due to campaign finance um, uh, shortcomings. She didn't submit her paperwork on time, and uh, essentially the county ruled that she had to run as a write-in. Um, so uh, Tim Grimel and Alexandria T. Riley are the two main candidates. They will be the only candidates listed on the ballot. Uh, Grimel, the former state representative, uh, former uh, House uh, Democratic leader and uh, county commissioner announced in January that he was running. Um, and then months later, Waterman uh, found out she could not be on the ballot, and Grimel ended up overwhelmingly uh, accumulating the most votes in the primary. Uh, it's essentially a race between um, someone who's been in politics for a dozen years and Riley, who... Um, has repeatedly talked about how she's born and raised in the city. Um, her mother and grandmother are from the city. Um, that she is, she feels that she is uh, the grassroots candidate in this race. Um, she has repeatedly spoken about uh, encouraging youth engagement and uh, fighting against apathy um, in that regard, which is something we've seen uh, from politicians on a national level in terms of garnering the youth vote. Um, she's Pontiac's former chief development officer. Um, currently, she's the uh, sales and development director for the Genesee County Land Bank Authority. Mm -hmm. And um, she's essentially said that Rymel, um, when he represented Pontiac from 2012 to 2018, that he didn't uh, do enough, uh, especially when the city was in receivership, and that these problems are still being felt. Um, almost a decade later. Um, she uh, has not been afraid to say that uh, she's not supported by outside groups or businesses. Um, she told me she's not trying to buy the election. Um, but Grimola, he has a lot of people on his side, including people in the community like Maddie Hatchett, who's been around uh, for decades and is a known commodity. Um, Dustin McClellan is a with the Pontiac Community Foundation and um, people uh, of that nature, the county executive, Dave Coulter, um, has expressed support for him. Um, he's essentially running on a platform that he wants to provide uh, jobs in terms of when businesses come to the city. He wants Pontiac residents to be uh, sort of at the front of the line and reap uh the benefits from these businesses and um, obviously small businesses in the city have been uh, hindered over the years and they're trying to find different ways to uh, connect with uh, people who are even visiting, you know, traveling through Pontiac. Yeah. Um, and then, and another thing with him is uh, he said, arguably his biggest priority is setting up youth recreation and enrichment programs, um, which extends beyond things uh, like recreation and athletics, but also encouraging tutoring and uh, STEM um, development. So um, they're not running essentially on major platform disagreements. They're just mostly running uh, in terms of one thing that 
he's been in office for a long time and what has he done. But uh, Grimal is, I mean, if you look at the, the primary votes, it's, it's going to be a, be tough for Riley tomorrow. Hmm. Um, so. so I I wonder if you can talk just a little about how the city's economic fortunes fit into this race. This is a, a place that for a long time has been talked up as having great potential to be an economic center for Oakland County, and we have not seen that that happen. How does that narrative play out in the race between uh, the two candidates? Well, as I was saying, you know, there is, and even in the primary, the candidates were running have referenced the loss of the Silverdome, the receivership. Um, they finally feel that, you know, all these years later that there's maybe the most optimism there's been in a while. Um, and a big part of this is the American Rescue Plan. Um, the city's received $37.7 million in federal money. And the current uh, mayor is, you know, conducting town halls to try to find out what residents want uh, with this money. And at the same time, uh, it's likely going to be the, the next mayor who comes in at the beginning of next year to figure out how to use that money and infuse it into the community. Mm. And uh, the big things are uh, business. Um, that's, it's encouraging people to come to the city. Um, in terms of long-term plans, um, both candidates have expressed um, getting rid of the word Woodward Loop. Uh, essentially, people for years and years have been sort of driving around Pontiac, um, get going to other cities but not going through Pontiac, and that is something that um, further down the line uh, may actually happen, and MDOT has been involved with that. Um, so it's about uh, providing grants to businesses, keeping businesses afloat, first of all, following uh, you know the, the hardships of the pandemic, and then uh, making infrastructure investments and uh Things like water mains, sewer drains, uh, providing broadband infrastructure. These are things both candidates have talked about, things the incumbent uh, mayor has been talking about. So I think that ARP money is going to have a heavy hand in uh, who the residents want to see handling that cash. Yeah. Uh, Let's go uh, to the phones here. Karen in Macomb County. Karen, welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. Thanks Hi. for taking my call. Just wanted to um, answer the conversation real quick that the flooding that's been going on in the south end of Dearborn Heights and Dearborn is nothing new. Uh, when I was a kid in 1972, our basement uh, flooded and there was raw sewage that was my coming goodness. up in the basement. Uh, the Ecorse Creek ran right behind our house. Um, and at the end of the backyard, hop the fence, go maybe 10 or 15 feet, look down, and there was the Ecorse Creek. Um, so that was the first time it flooded. And then it flooded again another year. I don't remember. And it flooded again in 1984, 85. Um, you know, we almost lost the washer and dryer because there was water in the appliances. So this has been going on for decades, and the sad thing is, is every time, um, you know, these floods would occur, um, the creek would just end up um, overflowing into the streets, and wow. you you couldn't even drive down the streets on so, garbage day. It so would just Karen, be from one end of the block to the other. People had to throw out appliances, furniture, so Karen, anything else they what, had in the basement. I don't know what the problem is with the city. They've known about this since yeah. the 70s. Yeah, Karen, and I yeah, really appreciate the call and the, and the information. Uh, that's amazing that this was going on uh, all the way back then and, and is still... Uh, confounding people and and politicians uh, right now. I quickly want to get one more voice into the conversation today. Uh, Keith Williams is the Michigan Democratic Party 
uh, Black Caucus, uh, a representative of that caucus, and uh, he missed the prop the discussion about Prop R. But he was key in, in the language. Keith, I've only got about a minute left, but I did want to give you a chance to talk just a little about the, this this ballot uh, issue. I do, Stephen. Okay. Uh, basically what this is about, this is about the right to self-determination. We're not asking for a handout or a handout. We're just asking for a chance to create a task force so we can make recommendations on, uh, on economic development and mm-hmm. housing. Those were the historical harms that was caused throughout the history of Detroit, sure. and that 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 start, stopped us from getting the wealth, uh, the, the wealth, ascertaining the wealth like everybody else in this community. Mm-hmm. And I just ask the citizens to give us a chance. It's not second tax dollars or anything like that. Um, next year we'll go back to it for another ballot initiative and we'll come up with the way how we finance this. But this is just the first step in a conversation to get things moving. Yeah. Uh, Keith, I really, I really love that you called and, and added that perspective. I think that's a really important point to keep making, that this is about starting a discussion uh, about, about this issue here in, in the largest majority black city in, uh, in, in the country. Thanks very much for the call. Okay, I want to say thanks as well to Nargis Rahman and Nick Mordawanek. Thank you guys for being here to tell us about what's going on in the suburbs. Thanks, Thank you for having us. Mm-hmm. Okay, also, before we go, I want to note that uh, you can find all kinds of information about the balloting tomorrow at wdet.org. Slash vote in particular, you can find the conversation we had with Mayoral Challenger Anthony Adams. Uh, we heard from Mayor Mike Duggan today. You can hear from his challenger there online. You can also find questionnaires for both candidates and, again, all kinds of information that we have been collecting here at WDET during the campaigns. That's going to do it for us today. We will be back tomorrow when I'm going to talk with historian and author Matthew Stewart about his new book, The 9.9%, The New Aristocracy That Is Entrenching Inequality and Warping Our Culture. Really interesting book and conversation that we're going to have tomorrow. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow. <laughs>